Hello everyone. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the European American Chamber of Commerce and I would like to welcome you to our latest look into the crystal ball on the future of finance. Our topic today is how to develop a realistic plan for Ukraine's reconstruction while the war is still raging and who in the end will work with Ukraine to guide the way through this daunting project and equally important, how to pay for such a difficult task. We will be joined by Bill Rhodes, a member of the EACC and the former Senior Vice Chairman of Citigroup and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill's leadership during the debt crisis in the 80s gained him a reputation of international financial diplomacy. He now serves as a trusted advisor to governments, financial officials and corporations worldwide. Bill's conversation partner is our friend Stuart McIntosh, the executive director of the Group of 30, an international financial think tank. His research centers on climate change, macroeconomics and systemic risk, global governance issues, as well as the political economy. Together, they will explore the complexities of developing a reconstruction plan for Ukraine, which includes the challenge of assessing the damage, both in terms of human cost and the cost of rebuilding the Ukrainian economy. The two will address the challenges of having 30 plus donors in one recipient versus the Marshall Plan's one donor and 16 recipients. They will also look at who should and can take the lead on this massive task and the role the private sector can take to make this happen. With that, I hand over to Stuart, who will be setting the stage for our podcast. Stuart, over to you. Well, it's great to be here again. Thanks very much to Yvonne and thanks to Paula and the entire team at the EACCNY for asking us to come together and to discuss planning for reconstruction of Ukraine after the war. And my name is Stuart McIntosh, and I'm the executive director of the Group of 30. And I'm also joined by Bill Rhodes, who is president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, LLC, and author of Banker to the World. We're coming to you this week because we felt we wanted to discuss the difficulties of reconstruction. We were mindful when thinking about this piece to think about what we did in, in the past. If you think about the Marshall Plan, which was initiated in April 1948 by the Truman administration, they carefully planned for the reconstruction of Europe. They set out an extensive plan. They, they had careful assessments of how to carry it out. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what that looks like or what that might look like in the Ukrainian context. Now, we could go into the details of what's, go what's gone on over the last year in the Ukraine war, but we don't want to belabor that. There's a lot of analysis of that out already. But suffice to say that at this stage, you know, the US and her European allies are all in militarily. There's been over 48 billion in funds from US allies for the war in defense of Ukraine, in defense of democracy, and various military uh, hardware is being transferred as we speak. The human cost has been massive with numbers of dead ranging from a low end at the UN uh, estimates of around 20,000 deaths to much higher numbers, maybe 100,000 in Ukraine 
and 200,000 Russian deaths and injuries. And we have 8 million refugees across Europe right now, many in Poland, many in Germany. So we're grappling with the costs and the consequences of this appalling war, but we also must think about how to go from the war into reconstruction once this is over, once we come to an end, the sooner the, the sooner the better, of course. So that's the context of our conversation today and the conversation with Bill today. So I wanted to put that on the table and perhaps turn to Bill and ask him to sort of maybe say a few opening words about why that kind of careful planning is necessary and what it might begin to look like as we move forward. Bill. Uh, thank you very much, Stuart. You have given very much an opening of what is going on. I would just remind people that the Marshall Plan was put into effect in April 1948, and it really was designed to rebuild Europe after World War II and also Japan, but concentrated on Europe. And I've had several Zoom discussions with the Ukraine Ministry of Finance, who were good enough to read my book, Banker to the World, and came to me to ask my views on this subject. We should remember that in order to bring this forth in a comprehensive, coherent way, you're going to be needing a head, someone who can drive this process. And I give it as an example, John J. McCloy, who was High Commissioner for Germany after the war, who ran the Marshall Plan in Europe, or MacArthur, who uh, ran it in Japan very successfully. So we need to have a leader. Various names have come up in this regard. I think the one that would be most acceptable, with most experience in a field like this, if he would agree to accept it, would be Mario Draghi, former head of the European Central Bank and recent Prime Minister of Italy, who has tremendous credentials in the financial world because at one point he was a vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. He would be the ideal one. A secondary candidate might be Ursula von der Leyen, who is the European Union head. But Mario, I think, would be the person who would need to lead this because you have to have strong leadership in order to bring this uh, forth. And then you get down to what are the institutions that could do this. And, of course, you would need the full cooperation of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That latter institution was actually formed with the fall of the Soviet Union to help rebuild uh, Eastern Central Europe. And of course, the European Investment Bank all would have to have key roles here in putting this together. And there would have to be responsibility also in, on the individual countries involved in Europe and the participation of the United States is going to be critical, just as it has been in the aid to the Ukraine on the military side. Because nothing is really happening at this point without major U.S. leadership on the military side. Now, I hope when we get to the actual reconstruction, the lead will pass to the Europeans because they have more stake in this than the United States does. But there are also a role for other countries. I think Japan, for example, Australia, Canada, all 
I think would be contributors to this process. I think it's very important that we have complete transparency here because, as you know, the Ukraine has had a history both as part of uh, the old Soviet Union and also post-Soviet Union in independence of corruption. And as a matter of fact, Transparency International ranks Ukraine 133 out of 180 countries in the realm of corruption. Now, Zelensky has been working on this very hard in the midst of the war to root out this type of corruption. And as a matter of fact, he won the presidency on the basis of uh, rooting out corruption. So that has to be a key area here because you will not have countries or institutions lending unless this can be rooted out. How long will the construction take? Uh, the Marshall Plan took five years, more or less. I think we are looking at longer term here, maybe seven to 10. And the private sector has got to be key here because one of the things that McCloy was able to bring in on Europe were substantial investments of the private sector, both in the financial world and in the corporate world. And uh, this was true to a lesser extent uh, in Japan, but also important. And so I think that all parts work together. And we must start the planning now because so many of the cities and towns in the Ukraine are in ruins. And with the continual bombardment by Russia, it'll even be worse. So everyone has been concentrating on the military side of things and often forget that the country cannot continue into the future as a free democracy unless its economic base is rebuilt again. One of the things I also want to mention here is what is the role of China going to be? Because China is the world's second largest economy. They are the largest lender to the developing world, to the one belt, one road. Up to now, they've appeared to back uh, Russia, not with weapons specifically at this point, but certainly buying a good shot of uh, the Russian oil exports. One of the key issues here, in the sense of prolonging the war and also in the economic reconstruction, is what the role of China will be. If China decides to send weapons to Russia to support their effort in the Ukraine, then we're in a different world. We've got an unholy alliance which could take us back to the Cold War and the Iron Curtain mentality that followed World War II. So I think we need to watch what China will do in this regard. And then there's a question that's hanging over everyone. What happens to Russia? Because Russia considers itself part of Europe. It certainly has ever since Peter the Great, which is a name that Putin constantly throws around along with Catherine the Great as his idols, you know, for where Russia should be. So at some point uh, in all of this process, one has to think of where Russia will end up at the end of this on the basis that it is still part of Europe. So that's sort of a brief rundown of how I see things unflowing. I don't know, Stuart, if you have some other thoughts you'd like to put on the table here. Well, maybe that was a great uh, tour de force, Bill, and I appreciate it very much. Maybe I'll bring us back to remind the listeners the, the scale of, of what we're talking about when we're discussing the need for planning the reconstruction and economic future of Ukraine. 
the minimum it's going to cost, according to the World Bank and the IMF, which did a rapid assessment last fall, is $349 billion. But that's at the low end. Now there are estimates of $750 billion. And every day, every week, that we see continued war, continued shelling, continued destruction of the infrastructure and the physical situation of Ukraine, we expect that price to rise. And so that's why, as you said rightly, Bill, that we need to plan for reconstruction tomorrow, today. And given the scale of the amount of money that we're dealing with here, and the fact that it will be driven by Europe, but also supported by the US and Japan and others who will commit to the reconstruction once we get past the war and once the war is at an end. There's a very, very serious issue of governance, oversight and transparency, as you say, Bill. Ukraine does not have a good history on this. It has a very sort of corrupt undertone in the past. We need them to shake that off. But we also need structures run by the Europeans that make sure that the money that must be and will be committed by the international community and by the major countries of the world goes to the proper projects that we know can deliver. We can't assume that that will otherwise happen. Indeed, the likelihood is if it's not properly overseen and the governance is not right, it won't happen and the money will be wasted and the popular support of the reconstruction will wane rather quickly. And that's why, as you said, Bill, you're you're right to go back to what happened in Europe with the Marshall Plan, but also in Japan, because you had powerful structures and leaders to drive the process forward, to make sure that the goal of reconstruction was achieved with a minimum degree of corruption and malfeasance by those who always exist in these circumstances to take advantage of that. I would just add a few things to this. Uh, Stuart, I think that uh, Germany has to play a key role in all of this because it is the largest economy in Europe. It also has borders that are very close to the Ukraine. And as you mentioned very correctly, of the 8 million refugees that have been dispersed, uh, mostly in Europe, Poland has taken 2 million, even though it is six times smaller in the sense of economic uh, GDP than, than Germany. Germany's taken somewhat under a million, but you have all of these refugees dispersed. You even have some here in the United States and Canada. And it's very important that you can bring a number of these refugees back with their expertise in technology and other in scientific areas. And if you wait too long to start this process, these uh, experts will not return, which could be a really big problem for Ukraine because they've lost a lot. So it's very important to think of the human element here also. Absolutely. So there's the the human element. You need to get those skilled individuals and those citizens back where they're from and back living in a in a in a functioning society with proper reconstruction underway. And you need those institutional aspects in Europe created by the Europeans and led by the Europeans to make sure that the delivery of support and aid is effective. So it's not like the Marshall Plan where you had, you know, you had one donor and many countries receiving the aid. It's right. I think also we, we have to keep in mind that I think all these estimates about what the cost will be are low, even the $750 billion, because every day more and more 
infrastructure is destroyed. And at this particular point, there's no end in sight. So I think the closest thing that you could think of might be what post-war Germany looked like. And so it's very, very important that this planning start as soon as possible and the funds are there. And the U.S. needs to be very supportive, but the lead must be taken in Europe. I think this is the biggest challenge Europe has faced since World War II, and we will see whether they're up to the challenge. That's right. They've got, they, they've got to step up institutionally. They've got to step up politically, geopolitically, and with the funds to defend democracy and, and repair and reconstruct Ukraine after the end of the war. And to come back to your, your concluding point, Bill, about the, the role of China, no one's expecting China to pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine, but China needs to play a positive, supportive role in securing the peace. Now, as you said, they've issued this 12-point peace plan uh, where they've called for a ceasefire, they've called for steps towards peace. That's a good first step, but we need to see the reality of this. Will Xi Jinping push President Putin to the table to negotiate in good faith, to find a way out of this? We're not going to find a way out very quickly, but we need China as a positive force to get to the exit from this war. Because otherwise, as you say, the alternative is China opts to provide dual use and, God forbid, military material to Russia. And then we're in a whole different situation, which could get a hell of a lot worse. Right. I think if you want to be optimistic, and we always try and be optimistic, but one must be realistic. You had a similar but much smaller situation in 1905 with the war between Russia and Japan. And I mentioned this for two reasons. One, because Russia was involved, and it was a very devastating war for Russia. Their fleet was destroyed at the Battle of Tsushima Straits by Admiral Togo of Japan and was the beginning of the supremacy of the, of the Japanese fleet uh, up until World War II in Asia, uh, and also the capture of, their major, of the Russian major fortress at Port Arthur. And I think back to that time because President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and remember the United States was an upcoming power at that particular point in time, somewhat like China is today, although certainly we didn't have the second largest economy, but we were approaching it actually. And he put the parties together in 1905 with the Portsmouth Treaty. And this is a role I would like China to play. Now, realistically, it's not clear that they're willing to do that, but when you take a look at the trade flows of China, uh, the United States and the EU are the biggest trade port partners of uh, China, whereas Russia is a minor trade partner, mainly in oil and gas. So I'm hopeful that that process will drive the Chinese to be more pragmatic. What we have to do is to see if the Chinese live up to this. That's right. That's right. And what one, as you say, has to be somewhat optimistic just in order to sort of keep going. But I, I, I think and I hope that the Chinese leadership understands the necessity to be part of the solution rather than supporting the, the aggressor explicitly like that. Well, I, I might, think I, I was just going to say the, the other point I raised at the end, Stuart, was what is the role of Russia going to be going forward? Uh, you know, we're not talking about regime change or anything like this, but hopefully somewhere, somehow, 
Russia can be re-engaged on a more realistic basis, but we shall see. But the main, I think, doubts that I have about everything we're saying is that Europe, and particularly the European Union, can really step up to this challenge. Because up to now, other than some economic problems, a Great Recession, European debt crisis, they haven't had a major challenge like this in front of them. And of course, Brexit didn't help with the situation in the UK. Uh, I know the UK, I know, wants to pay a positive role here. They are not in the, you know, in the physical monetary condition to do so. So I think that the EU has to be the principal player here. Well, you're right, Bill, and I would be perhaps a bit more optimistic, although still guardedly so, that what we've seen as a result, paradoxically perhaps, of, of, of the war in Ukraine is a more cohesive Europe. The allies have come together with the United States. The European Union is taking a much bigger role, both militarily and otherwise, and there's a, a cohesion that we didn't see in 2018, 2019. When you think about the vast numbers of refugees being hosted in Poland and in Germany, when you see the common effort being made, if that can be translated into strong institutional underpinning for the reconstruction, then I can see the way forward. I, you know, the European Union is in many senses a huge success. It itself is the post-war poster child for what can be constructed after a war. After all, the European coal and steel community was created to stop war ever happening again uh, between France and Germany. And the European economic community and the EU subsequent to that are all part of that rather positive and dynamic history. So when, when I think about it in those terms, I see it's quite possible for the European Union to design the mechanisms to reconstruct Ukraine and to begin rebuilding it with an anticipation at some point down the line, date TBD, for the Ukraine to join the European Union eventually. So I, I think it's possible. I do worry, you know, in the short term, will there be poor institutional choices? Will mistakes be made? Probably, almost certainly. But I'm modestly optimistic. Uh, and, that, and I'm glad, Bill, that you've been talking about how do we get from here to there. And I'm pleased to see that the European Union is grappling with that institutionally too. And I know that the, the, the chamber here has been talking about that and has discussed the Gateway Project, which has been launched by the European Investment Bank, which is part of the answer to how do you do it? How do you make sure that these new projects deliver for the populace, deliver for the investor, and deliver for the economy? If we can replicate that kind of process in the Ukrainian context as we come out of the war and we start rebuilding, I think I've got reason for optimism, but we still have to keep pushing, Bill. All right. Well, I think I would end my, my comments with saying that, you know, every great crisis produces an opportunity. And I think what we've seen here is a more coming together of the EU than we've seen since its founding. And I think that's the positive side of it. Now, if they can carry forth with the recommendations that you and I are making, this could end up as a big plus. And time will tell whether this will happen. But I am certainly optimistic that, that it will happen because I think it must happen 
or the continuing promotion of democracy and liberty throughout the world. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure to speak to you again. And I want to thank Yvonne and Paolo and the entire team at the Chamber who keep having these superb events and discussions to push the projects forward and to push the dialogue forward. So thank you so much. And I would just like to add to that, as a member of, of the board of the European American Chamber and an, and an active member, I would like to thank uh, Yvonne for the work that she does as president. And one of the things that she said to me early on was, Bill, this is going to be an opportunity with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine for the Europeans to finally get their act together. And hopefully, Yvonne, you were correct in your assessment. I believe you you are. Thank you, Bill. I hope we are, I was correct with that assessment as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the EACCNY Pulse. Please don't forget to rate and review this podcast episode, and be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on transatlantic business insights. For more information about the European American Chamber of Commerce and how to join, please reach out to membership at eaccny.com. We look forward to hearing from you.